Uh, we've been doing a sort of preparatory series uh, starting next week here. We're beginning a, a, a sort of year-long journey with a few bits and pieces, detours along the way, of tracing through the big story of the Bible. Uh, and over the last few months, we've just been thinking about, or the last month, we've been thinking about um, that idea of the big story of the Bible and how does the Bible hold together and, and what is, why is that so important for us. And so we come today to this passage in 2 Peter chapter 1. That's where we'll be focusing. If you've got your Bible there, it'd be good to have that open. And it's got some really important uh, things to show us about how God reveals himself and his plans and what that means for us. So please pray with me as we come to hear God's word. Father, we thank you for your word, a shining as light in a dark place. Uh, we pray that you would shine your light on us, help us to look forward to your, uh, the day of your kingdom when the day dawns and the morning star rises. Uh, shine your light now on our lives and on our paths that we might live for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All we are is our bodies. We live for a while, for a few decades, and then we die. There's nothing more to life than that. And so you've got to make the most of the time that you've got to live as happily as possible. If there is a God or gods, he or she or it or they have got no particular interest in our fate and no influence on it. There's no big plan for your life or for history. And the reality of evil in the world shows that if there was a God who was in charge of things, surely he would have stopped evil. So there's no judgment, there's no reward for the righteous, there's no punishment for wrongdoers. You and I just have to work out as well as we can how to live comfortably and take our pleasure when we can find it. Friendships are good, make the most of those. Public life and public service is full of trouble, avoid that where you can. Aim for tranquility, peace, equanimity. The gods are not to be feared, death cannot be felt, the good can be won, all that we dread can be conquered. That sounds very modern, doesn't it? But it's actually the philosophy of Epicurus, a philosopher who lived 400 years before Jesus, taught in Athens, set up a school in Athens, and uh, after he died, that school continued for several centuries. In fact, if you remember the story of Acts 17, when Paul arrives in Athens, uh, there's two groups of philosophers who question him, the Stoics and the Epicureans. It was, it was a relatively popular worldview in the time of the New Testament. And the Epicureans, we could say, were sceptical hedonists. They were sceptical especially about the gods and, and particularly about any idea of providence, that there's divine direction uh, of the events of history and, and about any idea of judgment. Uh, so Epicurus wrote... Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's omnipotent. Then he's not omnipotent. If he is able but not willing, then he is malevolent. 
If he's both able and willing, whence comes evil? If he is neither able nor willing, then why call him God? So, you know, his scepticism is whatever way you look at it, the, the fact of evil in our world shows there isn't a God who's in charge of things. And so they were hedonists. Life's about peace and pleasure. <clears throat> they weren't particularly recommending it here. Epicurus wasn't recommending an indulgent life. He said that the simple life is the one that's most likely to give you peace and pleasure. He said, it's not what we have, but what we enjoy that constitutes our abundance. Now, why am I telling you about this? Because I think it's quite likely that the false teachers influencing the church to which Peter wrote this letter of 2 Peter have picked up some Epicurean ideas. I doubt that the false teachers you know, are, are completely just Epicureans, but it seems to be part of the mix of their teaching. Uh, let me show you in the book a, few, a little bit of the evidence for that. Uh, <clears throat> in the passage that we're hearing from this, this evening, uh, Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories. He uses the word mythos. Uh, and that's exactly what the Epicureans thought about the Greek myths, especially about anything to do with judgment and the afterlife. They thought it was a cleverly devised story. In chapter 2, as Peter really starts to engage with the false teachers, he, he says that they uh, just follow their desires, quite Epicurean, and they reject authority, they reject God's rule or any idea of God's rule. Then over in chapter 3, at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, you must understand in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. There's that idea again. They will say, where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Well, down in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. And the Epicureans you know, would say, God is very slow to bring his judgment in fact, he's so slow, he's not going to do it. And so that gives us a bit of a feel of the kind of teaching that Peter is engaging with here. Uh, people saying there's no providence, events just happen. There's no judgment, there's no afterlife. There's no Lord. If God is there, he's, not, he's undemanding. There's no law. Just follow your desires for peace and pleasure. Now, if you think that doesn't sound anything like Christianity, and it's hard to believe that could be taught in a church, uh, Peter agrees, he thinks this is dangerous false teaching, and yet it is the kind of idea that could be dressed up to sound very spiritual, to be sort of an offer of a new way of freedom and deeper insight and truth. And so Peter writes to convince the church to stick with Jesus and the true gospel and not to follow this false teaching. Uh, and here in our passage in chapter 2, verse 16, Peter's particularly thinking about the return of Christ, and you see he returns to that again in chapter 3 as well. Like the Epicureans, the false teachers seem to be sceptical about the second coming of the Lord Jesus and about judgment and about the coming of the kingdom. Uh, perhaps they 
think that it's a spiritual reality now and that's all there is. There's nothing more coming. And so as Peter engages with this, he gives some key insights into the way in which God reveals himself and his truth and how his plan uh, ties the Bible and ties human history into one big story. So what I want to do is show you the two big points that Peter makes in this passage uh, and then a few implications that come from that. So the first point that Peter makes uh, goes back to that incident when Jesus was glorified on the mountains in the Gospels. We read it from Matthew. We'd often call it the transfiguration. And Peter says that that was the guarantee that Jesus is God's king and that he will return in glory. It's not a cleverly devised story. It's not some kind of fable or a nice sounding fairy tale. It's not a, some myth with a symbolic meaning or a moral teaching. This is something that happened in history and it guarantees that something more will come at the end of history. So verse 16, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. And the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power is his second coming. His first coming was in weakness and humility. It came anonymously, almost secretly. His glory was hidden. People didn't recognise who he was most of the time. And that ultimately led to the cross. But, but that first coming, Jesus' life and death and then his resurrection, laid the foundation for the kingdom of God with Jesus as king. And the transfiguration was a foretaste of what was to come when Jesus was revealed in majesty. Peter says he received honour and glory from the Father. You know, Peter and the other disciples who were there saw the glory of God encompassing and enveloping Jesus. And the, and the Father spoke to the Son, this is my Son whom I love. They're words that echo Psalm 2, which is an installation psalm, a psalm about uh, that there's enemies rejecting God and his anointed one, the, the Christ. But God says to Christ, I have made you king on my mountain. You are my son and you will own the nations and defeat your enemies. And, and so that's what the father is saying to Jesus on the mountain, the transfigurations, the glimpse forward into the future when Jesus will be the uncontested, unopposed, undeniably the king. And so this is one of the you know, basic truths of the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. Because of his resurrection and ascension, uh, he rules now and he will return to claim his kingdom and to bring justice. Not a nice story. It's not just a nice story. It's not wishful thinking. This has been established by God and it's shown in Jesus' glory on the mountain. And the apostles saw that and heard that. Peter, James, and John were there. And Peter, as he recounts it 
here in 2 Peter underlines both the sight and the sound. He says, we were eyewitnesses to the majesty. We saw the glory of Jesus and we heard the voice. And so here's another key part of God's revelation of his plans. Uh, They're revealed in Jesus himself, as in the transfiguration. But Jesus has called and appointed apostles who were with him, who saw what he did, who heard what he taught. In this case, who saw his glory and heard the voice. And so there's this line of connection. Jesus appointing apostles who go and preach and teach and ultimately write, as Peter's doing here, uh, that that becomes our New Testament. It's not a made-up fable. Peter's saying, I saw it and I'm writing it about it to you. Jesus will return as Lord. God has already made him king and Peter has seen it and heard it. The second point that Peter makes then goes back to the... You got a question? There you go. There were three... Well, there's probably not three, but there were magi, um, uh, probably astrologers more than kings. Yep. So they were another people who had at least a little insight into who Jesus was. Yep. Um, But then most of the... Most of the people around Jesus most of the time didn't work it out. Yeah. Good, good question. So the second point that Peter has goes back then to the earlier revelation from God that the prophets in the Old Testament promise that the Lord will come to rule and to judge. So he says in verse 19, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you'll do well to pay attention to it. So which, um, which message is he thinking about? He could be thinking about Daniel 7, the vision of the throne set up and the books opened. Could be Zephaniah, the, day, the great day of the Lord of God's destruction and anger. It could be uh, Isaiah 13, which says the day of the Lord is coming, day of wrath and fierce anger. The Lord says, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their sins. And I think Peter's thinking of those and, and more. But, but, but more than that, he, he's thinking of the whole of the Old Testament, uh, which, as we have seen over the last few weeks, and we'll see even more uh, in the next few months, you know, promises the return of God and his presence um, and his blessing to the world through Israel as he establishes his kingdom. Of course, that's an unfinished story in the Old Testament. And it comes to its great conclusion in Jesus. So the Epicureans think that life's just rolling on, there's no direction, there's no purpose, there's no end point. But Peter says, in fact, all along God has planned and set the day of the Lord when his rule will be revealed and implemented. And if, like Epicurus, you say, well, he hasn't done anything about it yet, so it doesn't, shows he's never going to, Peter's answer over in chapter 3 is, no, God is patient. When he wraps things up, it will be the complete wrap-up, and in the meantime, he's waiting patiently. But his patience won't extend 
forever. And so from that, Peter makes two, he's got two things to say about the Old Testament prophecies. One is that they've been confirmed. So uh, if you're reading the NIV, the New International Version, there uh, it says, we have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. Or if you look at the ESV, it says, we have them more fully confirmed. But, but either, either way, whatever, however you translate it, Peter, Peter's making the connection between the Old Testament and Jesus and the transfiguration, saying what was promised in the Old Testament is made even more, we're even more confident of its, of its truth, it's even more reliable because it's now fulfilled in Jesus. And Jesus himself, of course, teaches that the Bible is God's word and he follows it and he fulfills it at the transfiguration. Uh, who was there? Moses, the giver of the law, Elijah, the great prophet. And there they are looking forward to the glory of Jesus. And so the day of the Lord, God's promised end, the time of his judgment, is sure from the Old Testament and confirmed in its fulfilment in Jesus. And Peter then also affirms that these prophecies are inspired. Scripture has not just come about by mere human initiative, but it begins with God's work. It comes from him by his spirit. That's true and obvious of the prophets in the Old Testament you know, who say, the word of the Lord came to me. And so what they then say is what God has said to them. But, but that's true of the whole of the Old Testament, that it's God's word. That's how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. That's the way the apostles viewed the Old Testament. It's not just a human response to God. It's not just a human reflection on God, although it is that. But it is, first of all, God's own word inspired by his spirit. And what Peter says here is uh, he's obviously just he's thinking about the old, what we'd call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. But over in chapter 3, he also talks about Paul's writings, the Apostle Paul, and calls them scripture as well. And so it's true of the whole Bible that it is God's inspired word. Back at the end of the... 19th century, uh, there were really big debates, interestingly, especially in Presbyterian churches, about the nature of the Bible. Uh, it was a century in which there'd been all sorts of philosophical developments and greater historical knowledge and new scientific insights, and it raised all sorts of questions about what, what is the nature of the Bible? Charles Briggs from Union Theological Seminary in New York was someone who had a great respect for the Bible. He defended a great deal of traditional theology, but he couldn't accept the old doctrine of the inspiration and the full inspiration of, of the Bible. He said in an infamous speech he gave, there is nothing divine in the text, in its letters or words or clauses. He meant something like, you know, the general message of the Bible is from God, but not the details. There's a famous response to this by B.B. Warfield from Princeton Seminary in his article on inspiration, where he looks at some key passages in the Bible, including this passage, 2 Peter 1, 
and he argues, he says this, the scriptures are throughout a divine book, created by divine energy, speaking in their every part with divine authority. Or in another article, he says in a more pithy way, what scripture says, God says. Now, B.B. Warfield was very aware that there were challenging questions and difficult issues to think about. Uh, he, he, he understood those as well as Briggs did, but I'm sure he was right that Briggs was giving away more than it might initially appear. That, that if you're not clear that the Bible is from God and that the words of the Bible are from God, then it's not long until nothing in the Bible is really from God. And as we see in this passage, the Bible itself says that it comes from humans carried along by the Spirit to communicate God's word. So Peter says the transfiguration and the apostolic witness confirm the scriptures. Jesus is Lord. And he will return. Let me show you three implications that come from that. Uh, the first is about God's great plan. Our world is not drifting along in some aimless stream. God has a plan and he's promised it and he's revealed it. And it focuses on Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He has lived and died and risen again to redeem his people. He's risen and ascended as the appointed king and he will return to establish his kingdom in its fullness. That's the framework of history. It's nothing like the Epicurean version or the common Australian sceptical hedonism either. Now, if we look at history just in terms of the here and now, uh, there's plenty to shake our heads about, isn't there? We've been reminded about some of those things again this evening. And, and some people look at you know, what's happening around in our world right now and respond with just a kind of bleak despair. Just, things are bad and getting worse. Or, or they invest all their hope in what humans can do and say, you know, we need what, what they're talking about now, the great reset, this is our chance to restart things in a whole new way. But God's plan is different to both of those options. His plan and purpose puts a different framework around history and around our lives. It's in his control. And it will ultimately end with his kingdom when he brings the blessing of his peace to a new creation. And there will be a day of accountability for all humans. Now, that doesn't make life here and now unimportant. There's certainly things to worry about and things to work on. But that frame of the kingdom around our own lives and around history changes the way we look at it. And it changes the way we live. And that's the second implication. There's a fundamental connection between the truth of God's word and his promises and the way we live. Now that's part of Peter's point, that the false teachers, by communicating a wrong message, are also undermining faithful discipleship. 
and he's concerned that the people to whom he's writing will live faithfully for Jesus. God's truth, his plan, his promises, um, the gospel, are connected to how we live with Jesus. And so hearing God's word is never merely theoretical. One of the things I do sometimes to sort of to chill out um, is to listen to podcasts about history. Uh, and, and I realise that one of the reasons I do that is because I can listen to them very theoretically. Uh, it, it, you know, it's very interesting to know what happened in medieval England, but it actually doesn't impact my life at all. That's not what the Bible's like. Uh, the Bible is far more like hearing a diagnosis from your doctor. This is about you. Uh, it's about your life. It's about what you should do. Uh, it really comes out very clearly in chapter 3 of 2 Peter where uh, Peter talks about the return of Christ again and the day of judgment. He, he describes it like a, um, a, a refining fire, refining metal, melting it down and then the dross is removed off and, and something beautiful comes out. And using that imagery, he says, this is chapter 3, verse 11, since everything will be destroyed or refined in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy lives and God, live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will come will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. See, God's plan for Jesus' return changes how we live now. And so in this passage, uh, Peter is calling us to be faithful pilgrims. Let me finish and then I'll come back to you, okay? Uh, he's calling us to be faithful pilgrims. You know, a pilgrim is someone who's on a journey but they're not there yet. They've got a goal and each day they're moving towards that goal and it's that destination that frames their journey. They can't just settle down in one of the towns along the way and make their home there. They've got somewhere they're getting to. Can't just take a big kind of deviation detour to go and do something else. They have to keep on track. And the Bible often describes Christians as Pilgrims. We've got a sure destination that's been promised by God, but we aren't there yet. And we're journeying to and living for the kingdom. We don't travel alone. We've got one another. We're in a company of pilgrims that God has given us his spirit. But Peter particularly emphasises here that we have God's revelation in scripture. Verse 19, he says, You'll do well to pay attention to it, that's the prophetic message, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in their heart. Right, so now we have in the prophetic message the light beginning to dawn and we need to keep paying attention to that until the fullness comes, until we reach the kingdom or really until the kingdom reaches us. Very different to the Epicurean life. There's a goal, there's a direction, there's a purpose as we live for the kingdom. 
and we look for Jesus' return. And of course, this is the imagery that John Bunyan used in the famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the pilgrim Christian is on the way to the celestial city. Early in the meeting, in, in the journey, he meets Goodwill, who prepares him for the long trip. He says, there are many turnings and widenings. It's very easy to get lost. But he points out the narrow way. He says, that is the way thou must go. It was cast up by the patriarchs, prophets, Christ and his apostles. That's the story we've been thinking about this today. And it's as straight as a rule can make it. This is the way thou must go. Saying scripture is going to direct you. And in fact, the next stop for Christian is the house of the interpreter who explains the Bible to him. Look at here verse 19 again. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So each day and each week as we continue our journey, we're called to be faithful. And scripture is the light for that journey. Pay attention to it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of the kingdom, for the promise that Jesus will return. We thank you for the revelation of that through Scripture, through the Old Testament prophecies and promises, through Jesus himself, through the teaching of the apostles. Uh, help us to pay attention to this, to learn from it. Uh, use it to shape us to be people who live for you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.